Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine, the world's greatest podcast about the two 90s space station shows. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How are you doing today, Matt? Really excited about today's episodes. We got Babylon Squared and The Wire, which are just two fantastic episodes of science fiction in general. If uh, you have not watched these yet or have never seen these episodes, you know, usually I'm kind of like, eh, you can probably skip it. It's all right, whatever. Uh, this one, I'm giving you a disclaimer. You need to watch both of these episodes before you listen to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, Babylon Squared is Season 1, Episode 18 of uh, Babylon 5. And then we have The Wire, Season 2, Episode 22 of Deep Space Nine. And Babylon Squared aired on the 10th of August, 1994. And The Wire aired a couple months before, uh, the 8th of May, 1994. And where you been, Bob? Uh, last couple of days, you've been a uh, ghost to me. I thought you were like Babylon Four at this point. I didn't know what happened. I, you know, I just have a, have a summer class. Just very oh. busy. Yeah, Bob and I, Bob and I correspond throughout the week through text. Like, and if I don't get at least one text message from Bob, I like start freaking out because he's on the other side of the country. So uh, it's good to know, Bob, that if you if anything does happen, someone will probably get to you before the cat starts trying to eat your body. I mean, I want the cat to eat my body, Matt. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it feels good. As, as a friend of mine says, he, uh, he would really like to just be ground up and made into dog food for his dogs when he's dead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> par- partially, it's because uh, both of his dogs have very, uh, they're very Seattle dogs and they have very uh, uh, finicky diets. And so, you know, anything to save his partner a little money, I think he would uh, be grateful for. Yeah, so yeah. We're, and, we're glad uh, you're alive for this, Bob. Just, just well, letting you know. I, I, I will also uh, quote the uh, immortal line from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" that it's perfectly normal for two grown men to need each other this much. <laughs> yeah, we're like Garrick and Bashir. <laughs> <laughs> no, I assume that makes me Garrick. I assume. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's move on into the a plot. All right. So uh, the, we've got uh, Babylon 5 reappearing in the same place that it disappeared four years earlier, and Sinclair and Garibaldi are leading an expedition to evacuate its crew. Uh, it actually it sounds like Babylon 4 reappeared in the same spot that it was, and that was also the same spot as the prior three Babylon stations, where Babylon 5 is about three hours away from that spot. Yeah, is there ever, like, a reason for that? Like, why they chose, like, three hours away to put Babylon 5? I guess just in case maybe it does show back up and doesn't... If I'm remembering right, the first three are destroyed by sabotage, so there's not really a reason to change the location, but the since the fourth one just kind of vanishes mysteriously, they probably think it's unwise to put it in exactly the same Oh, they same think there's place. some kind of, like, temporal anomaly or some weird some weird mumbo jumbo that's like took it away that may come back to the exact same spot. That makes sense. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't paying that much attention to the dialogue early in the episode, but yeah, my impression is that although they didn't know, they didn't know it had become unstuck in time. They did know that they were getting like strange readings from that location. And so that's probably why they moved Babylon five a bit. I think it's funny that their logic is okay this thing gets zapped into into time uh but you know we'll just move the next one three hours down the road <laughs> like that's gonna fix it like <laughs> well they don't know, they don't know it got zapped into time yeah but they but they know something was going on and they only moved it three hours away i mean three hours in space is like nothing when you're talking when you can start moving light years yeah yeah but i mean you know it's well it's three hours away at moving faster than the speed of light right or no i guess they or, well, no, they don't go through the jump gate. That's right. So it's three hours away at sublight speed. Okay. Anyway, um, so we just built it. We built it three hours down the road. Just three hours down the road. It's right there. <laughs> it's right there. Right there. <laughs> and in the B plot, we have Delenn uh, summoned to the Great Council and elected the leader uh, of the Great Council, which seems to both surprise and disappoint her. And I, uh, I christened this episode in the on our friends with this is the one with Babylon four. You know? I don't know how you ever came up with that name, Matt. It's so creative. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's the one with Babylon four. Remember that episode? Yeah. That's why you're making the big bucks. That's the yeah, podcast is making a ton of money. We were like all the ads we provide our listeners to listen to. It's great. 
All right, so let's go ahead and address, let's go and address the elephant in the room, Bob. Uh, is it fasten and zip or zip and fasten? Uh, I'm a total relativist on this issue. It depends on how tight the pants are. Uh, ordinarily, though, you fasten first, but sometimes the pants are very tight and you have to zip first. That's I, I usually fasten and zip. So, okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way. For those of you that don't know, that's that's a that's a talking point between Garibaldi and Sinclair that was hilarious, very well written. It does uh, it does suggest uh, what an absolute drag Garibaldi must be to hang out with. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you you'd mentioned that the, also they they have they play a little prank on Ivanov at the beginning of the episode. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I thought it was very funny. It's uh, they you know uh, Sinclair uh, talks softly until Ivanov falls asleep uh, while eating her breakfast. And then they steal her breakfast and then uh, they pretend like 30 minutes or so has passed and that she's late for work and uh, it works. And it's also just a kind of amusing little foreshadowing of the dilemma of Babylon 4 on a much smaller scale. Yeah, it took me like two viewings of this episode to actually understand that that was supposed to be foreshadowing. <laughs> like I didn't get it. I did not catch it like the first or actually three, three viewings. I didn't catch it the first time. And the second time, it just went over my head again. But then the third time, I was like, oh, okay, that's why they did that. Okay, it makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. It also is a reoccurring uh, source of humor on the show that Ivanova really hates mornings and doesn't sleep very well on Babylon 5. I don't, I don't think I'd sleep very well either on a kind of space station like that. I would... On the one hand, sure. But on the other hand, you'd think, I, you know what, she's been there at least a year. You think at some point you might adapt a little bit. Maybe Garibaldi can drug her. Ayo, let's not go there. Ayo, last episode. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> I mean, I just want to—I just want to stress what an unfortunate joke that is. After Bill Cosby just walked off. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, folks. Ugh. Not, not did not did not put two and two together. Sorry. Ugh. Okay. Just, just as a side note, Matt, do you know? Did you know that there's actually is an episode of the Cosby Show where it jokes about him like drugging people? I had no idea what, uh-oh. No, they're like, apparently, uh, I, I haven't seen this episode, but I've heard it described from a couple of people, and apparently you can find it on YouTube, but apparently Cliff Huxtable makes a barbecue sauce that, like, is drugged, and it knocks people out, and so whenever people come over for dinner, like, he's like, you know, did you ever, you ever notice how all the couples are leaving early? And it's because he's dosed the barbecue sauce. And then, like, the last thing of the episode is apparently him telling his wife uh, to go upstairs. There's a little uh, medicine uh, cap full of the barbecue sauce on, like, the uh, bedroom dresser. Oh, God. Yeah. That's yeah, it's, disturbing. Yeah. It, it Apparently, it really was just, like, in plain sight for years and years. And people just didn't notice or didn't care. That's disturbing. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, Bill Cosby just. Mm. All right, back to Babylon Five. I can't take that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's really it's really. Thanks, thanks for shaming me for my joke. Sorry. All right, so back. <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. So to get back on track, um, what one thing I did want to say about Babylon uh, Four becoming unstuck in time. It's a pretty fun trope in science fiction. I, I enjoy it a lot. It's actually become very common in superhero comics of the last 20 or so years. Both Batman and Captain America, when they got resurrected, I think Captain America and Captain America Reborn and Batman and the Return of Bruce Wayne, and both of these were maybe like 2007, eight or so in terms of comics years. In both of those comics, uh, both uh, Steve Rogers and Bruce Wayne become unstuck in time. The original, maybe not the original example of it, but the example of it that gave it its name is uh, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, which I think we both read in high school. And actually, in retrospect, I liked it at the time, but in retrospect, I've come to hate Kurt Vonnegut and that novel. I find it really annoying. Uh, but probably my favorite example of Unstuck in Time is there's an Avengers arc in Jonathan Hickman's Avengers run called Infinite Avengers, where some of the Avengers get stuck in time and or unstuck in time rather, and they jump first fifty, then five hundred, then five thousand, and then fifty thousand years into the future, and then they jump even further than that. So it's it's a really interesting sci-fi conceit. Yeah, I agree. It was very uh, it was different. Not something you see too often, like on 
on television, or at least I, I, did we ever see anyone like this in Star Trek? I don't think so. I yeah, Star Trek does a lot of time travel, but I I don't think they ever do like an unstuck in time one. More, it's usually more. Oh no, we broke the timeline. At least in the original series, right? I mean, there's plenty of time travel, of course, but I'm mean, yeah, yeah. With, with the unstuck in time with this particular trope, I don't I can't think of an episode honestly of anything off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a good point. I it looks at it's pretty. It was pretty common, like, I know Vonnegut had done a version of it, Philip K. Dick had done a version of it, maybe some other people had in fiction, but I, I can't think of a TV example, and then, yeah, most of the comics examples I'm thinking of are just in the past 20 years or so. It probably was an even more novel trope uh, at the time of the episode. So, let's talk about this B-plot for a second, uh, with the Grey Council, Ducat. Right, or is it yeah. duck? Hat? Or is it duck hat? How do we pronounce his name? <laughs> like uh, you, you, you pronounce it like Ducat, but you maybe try and slip the H in there a little. Yeah, Ducat. yeah, Ducat. I, I, if, I'm like really like like that's that's crazy. Like that if that's the name that this this was the Grey Council's leader, of course, and mm -hmm. now he's is he dead? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. He is, but he he'll still play a role in the Minbari storylines. So you'll you'll learn a fair bit more about him. Okay, so I don't need to worry. Yeah, it's just the name threw me a loop for a loop because you know the whole point of this podcast is talking about the the similarities and differences and the uh you know the potential for you know copying other people's work. But then Ducat pops up and you're like, what? Okay, that's like that's such a weird ass name to have. Well, I I will say, I mean, I think there's no question that DS9 is in a lot of ways derivative of Babylon 5. I mean, the, the story as I understand it is that the Paramount execs had JMS's pitch for Babylon 5, and although they didn't share the pitch with the DS9 writers, they did adapt a lot of things that they wanted from it, and they told they kind of told the DS9 writers, this, these are things we want you to do. Yeah, we want you to call that character Ducat. Make sure you do that. <laughs> I think, like, the name of the mi a minor character who we haven't heard of until the show has been, what, this came out in, like, early 94. I think that's probably pretty unlikely that that was a direct lift. That's probably just a weird coincidence. But I, I, I grant you it's a really weird one. Yeah, it's not a name like Elizabeth or, you know, Ashley or Susan or Bill. Is it it's something like... <laughs> It's Ducat. You know how like sci-fi alien names, like they, they have a certain formula. Granted, they're not like real names and they're, they're not as established real names in different human cultures, but th there's still a certain formula to how like Americans do alien names and Ducat in both forms kind of fits that formula. Yeah. All right. So what about this prophecy that Delane keeps speaking of? Uh, it's apparently why she wants to stay on Babylon 5. She refuses to take the leadership position because she wants to stay there. Uh, she's willing to face exile to actually remain on B5. W what is this about? Yeah, I mean, I can't really clarify it that much. I, I will just say, when I when I watched uh, this episode without having seen the rest of the show, I was really fascinated by this stuff. Now that I kind of know how the Minbari stuff shakes out, I really don't like the Minbari. And so I'm not... I don't super love this this subplot, and it also is. I think the stubbornness of both the council and Delenn here is a little forced. I don't think it makes complete sense. It's a little a little annoying. There's also potentially another reason that Delenn wants to stay on the station that she's probably unconscious of or only a little conscious of. And subsequent events will clarify that stubbornness a bit. I don't really like those subsequent events, but subsequent events will give her maybe possibly an, an extra motivation for having wanted to stay on the station. Is she in love with Sinclair? Is that it? Eh, possibly, possibly. It could oh. be something else, though. Uh, okay. All right, so I, I want to address, too, speaking of like the prophecy, these flashback and flash-forwards through time that both Garibaldi and Sinclair have. That scene where Garibaldi has the Gatling gun is awesome. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest scene. <laughs> uh, we don't know what he's shooting at. We don't really get a good look at, at who anyone is shooting at. They're shooting all over the place. Uh, but I'm assuming it's something pretty bad or scary or whatever. 
And then Garibaldi tells Sinclair he needs to just to go. Is I mean, he needs to like abandon the station or well, what's going on? Can you give me any clarification here or what's happening without spoiling? Um, I can't give you any clarification, although this is kind of the problem of, so, you know, I watched the show rather fast or really I watched uh, seasons two through four rather fast. I'm struggling to remember how, if this exactly comes to pass. Like I, I can't, I can't really give you clarity, even if it does or doesn't. Because if you'll remember with the prophecies from that Centauri Cirrus episode, signs importance when we have the female Centauri Seer who makes predictions about the Babylon Five station's destruction. Those predictions do come true, but very much not in the way you might expect from how she delivers the prophecy. And so that's kind of what you might be looking at here too. Okay. So there's a possibility the station could be destroyed and like people could die. And that there's something crazy like busting up in the station. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm also just very bad at remembering plot. Like I, I try to watch more for like characters and themes and like funny beats. I'm not I, I'm not really good at keeping track of like a deeply convoluted plot. Just to give another example, I had to remind myself uh, what the triluminary was and did in, later in the show. Yeah, and I'll, I'll go back to that in a minute. But yeah, you uh, yeah, I noticed in our notes you changed the name of it, and I had purposely put <laughs> Triforce, but you don't. I don't oh, think you got the okay. reference. <laughs> I didn't get the reference. What was the reference? It's from Zelda. <laughs> oh well, there's no reason I would have gotten the reference because I was very bad at Nintendo games. And yeah, you never got very far in Zelda. Yeah, you're pretty bad at them. Okay, so that's true. Yeah. So, did you think the Garibaldi scene from the Gatling gun though? Did you did it did it uh, did not harken back to like uh, Alien, like that one scene where he's like, you know, what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, where um, I'm blanking on the name, but he's the great black exploitation actor, Yafet Kodo. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Yafet Kodo. Um, yeah, I I didn't think of that until you said it, but I can I can see it now that you said it. Yeah, it's crazy. Like I was watching, it, I was like, "Wow, that, that reminds me of that scene." Although it's a flamethrower in Alien, right? Correct. Yeah, but also, yeah. but some of the other people. What's weird to me though is like some of the other people on the station are using flamethrowers. Like they're not they're they're not using like uh, traditional weapons. They're not using those those PP guns or whatever. They're using like weird stuff, like get like Garibaldi with his machine his Gatling machine gun thing, and then like some of the other dudes have flamethrowers. So I don't know. I don't know what the uh, deal is. I think I'm kind of, uh, kind of. Let's see, kind of Centauri psychic style, although like much, much more mundane because I'm just talking about a science fiction show that I struggle to remember. I, I think I am now remembering a scene that this might be predicting, and it wasn't the scene I was thinking before. But it is a really, it is a really fucking cool scene if it's the one I'm thinking of. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I can't say anything more about it, but it's it's real. It's a really fucking cool scene. If this is if this is actually predicting what I think it's predicting now. Yeah, we also don't get a cool scene though. Like with, we get another flashback that's not as cool, but it's it's there. It's uh, we have this flashback to Garibaldi's former lover. Uh, oh, I, you told me last week, and I can't even say it. Lice, lease, lease. Yeah. We learned about in the previous episode. I, I don't know what the point of that was, but she was there. It was it was showing that Garibaldi was running off with Sinclair to this you know the station. Uh, basically, he was or leaving rather her. Garibaldi was running off on lease to go with Sinclair. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I I do think it is kind of interesting just that it shows the real emphasis on like episode to episode continuity in the show, even in the very episodic season one, and lease will become a fairly. Well, important is too strong a term, but she she will keep showing up. Okay. So uh, we got another character that, that made his introduction, uh, Zothras, who to me looked like a cat's reject or something you'd find in a, you know the labyrinth with David Bowie. Uh, he's pretty <laughs> That's cool. That's a good comparison. I pretty, had thought of the labyrinth. Yeah, pretty cool, though. I liked him. He was uh, interesting, and just the way he spoke was crazy. But I'm going to pull what happened straight from the uh, the Babylon Project online. So Zothras explains that he and those with him have come to steal the station, moving it through time to a place where it can serve as a base of operations in a great and terrible war. He mentions that he is following a figure called The One, a person he would willingly die for. Zothras says The One is hurt and that he must help him. Alright, I, I don't know what he's referring to there. I kind of assume The One may be Sinclair, 
but I just, that's just an assumption. But this is getting all into prophecy type stuff. And yeah, he, well, I mean, I, please note the ambiguity in my response here, but I, I think it's fair to say that uh, you're not wrong to assume or say that Sinclair is the one. Okay. All right. So then, uh, you know, after all this, this is the, the, the basic plot of what happens is, or the basic weird part that happens is that there's this dude in a spacesuit. He shows up. Zathras gives him like a time stabilizer or some object. Uh, the dude disappears. Zothra says he can't survive without the time stabilizer that he just gave the space-suited dude. So I'm like, okay, so I guess Zathra sacrifices himself, or is willing to sacrifice himself. And then the station starts to collapse, and a, a big column falls on top of Zathra. Current-day Sinclair wants to save him, but Zothra says it's his destiny. But then the dude in the spacesuit shows back up and saves Zothra. All right, so Zothra is saved. I guess Zothra did not die in this episode, which is good, because I, I like the character. It's It's... It was kind of out of left field at first, but then, you know, after watching it like the second time, I liked the character. Are we going to see more of him? You are. You are. Okay, good. Um, although, it is it is also kind of interesting, too, when Zathras gets saved by the one, and, you know, then it's revealed to be the older Sinclair. It The way he speaks to him is kind of funny, because I, it, I didn't write the line down, but it, uh, Zathras says something to the older Sinclair to the effect of, um, I knew you would say I knew you would save me and it sort of implies that like even though like he sends the younger Sinclair away like he still expects older Sinclair to, to like come through so they're at a and it also maybe stresses that like Zathras struggles a little bit to differentiate between older and younger Sinclair but it, I just thought that was a kind of interesting point that is interesting yeah I didn't I didn't catch on to that I, yeah I just kind of I, when I heard it, I didn't think about, yeah, he, he, he's referring directly to Sinclair. But yeah, the dude does take off his helmet. It is older Sinclair, because you can tell he's older. He's got, like, some more wrinkles, and they grade his hair. But then he, then Sinclair, later on, he's talking to someone off screen, and he says to this person, he tried to warn them, but it all happened just the way I remembered. And then the woman sounds like Delenn, and she says, I know it's time. We have to go. They're waiting for us. Is it, we're gonna we're gonna revisit this later? Like is that, oh yes, okay. Oh, yes, um, you're gonna we're gonna revisit this episode later in a way that like I really I I don't think I've ever seen TV do. I think I've just seen comics do. Oh, awesome. Okay. Um, and yeah, that it, it. I think it's fair to say that is Delenn. Um, although there and you see her arm. Although there there's a good reason they don't show her. Okay, that makes sense. I know you're, I know they're going to revisit this, but let me just I'm just going to ask some questions, and maybe you can just clarify. Did Sinclair time travel to save his younger self? Is that kind of what happened, maybe, or to some degree? Um, Sinclair is time traveling, but not to save his younger self. Okay, why does he have to wear a spacesuit? That'll be explained later, and slash I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> And uh, you'll you'll have to wait till season three for this. Oh, season attention. three, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then there's actually the second comic I want us to read um, picks up on not not on these questions, but on it picks up on a thread from this episode too. Although it's not that important of a thread. Okay. Well, um, you know, back in present time, Delin gets the uh, the triluminary, which I refer to as the Triforce, because it's just this magical triangular object. And uh, she may need it soon. What's what's that about? What's that for? It... Um, Delenn will be involved in something big soon, but I honestly didn't remember that the Triluminary played a role in it. Oh, <laughs> to wow. Be, to be, like, I, I don't think the Triluminary is, is as important as it seems in this episode, although it it will come back, yes. I mean, apparently she's been building, like, okay, she's been, like, playing Jenga in her in her quarters. Have you noticed yeah, that? Yeah, she's been doing that uh, Tom Waits song, uh, What Is He Building? In yeah, there? yeah, she's been playing Jenga, so I don't know what that is. Okay, and I guess the tri they're all triangles, so there's no telling. Okay. This is a crazy episode. There's so much going on. I mean, this is probably one of the best episodes of the series I've watched so far. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, if you were... If somebody wanted to just skip through season one, this is like one of the handful of ones you actually need to watch. After watching this last night, I was thinking that maybe I, uh, maybe we should do a podcast or not a podcast, an episode at the end of the season that 
just goes through each episode and we determine like is this something that's actually necessary like do you have to watch this like you kind of you know what i'm saying did like essential stuff oh yeah yeah uh, i i i I like that idea although honestly i think the list is really short like i think i think there's only like maybe four things on it let's see i think that would be good for fans though like you know people just don't have the time to watch like all the the first season because there's yeah. been a lot of duds maybe, guys maybe, like this is... maybe we just make that a maybe we just make that a segment on our season one wrap up that's a great idea okay we'll do that i think that's a great that's good yeah we do need to just just to have the essentials that way people know yeah honestly it's probably just this the finale signs importance uh midnight on the firing line and uh Maybe the maybe the other Minbari episode that's coming up, Legacies. I don't I don't know that you would need much more than those. Yeah, I mean it's it's been kind of there. Uh, there's been so many dud episodes. Like I mean, they're not, I shouldn't say dud. I guess that's too, it's too harsh. They're just not as they're just not important to the overall plot that I'm seeing you know occurring. Oh well, and you, you definitely want to watch Mind War too, the one that introduces uh, Bastard. Yeah, but we don't need to watch Believers. I can tell you that right now, ever. Yeah, yeah, Believers, TKO, Grail, all that can be. <laughs> yeah, Grail. Oh, great! I've got another one to look forward to because I don't think we've done we haven't done TKO. TKO is bad, but it's it's not nearly as bad as Believers. Okay, okay, that's good to know. Ugh, Believers. All right. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this episode? Yeah, I just wanted to make a, a nice uh, or a nice little connection. So, you know, they talk a lot about the Flying Dutchman legend here, and I believe it. Sinclair even tells a version of it to Ivanova at the end of the episode. And I just wanted to just ask if you had a favorite version of the Flying Dutchman. I think mine is there's a William Hope Hodgson novel from the early 20th century called Ghost Pirates. Uh, Hodgson's a really fun horror writer. He's sort of like a predecessor of H.P. Lovecraft, and he did weird fiction and occult detective fiction stuff like that. But I really, I really like his novel *Ghost Pirates*. That's pretty, pretty directly inspired by *The Flying Dutchman*. So, uh, *Flying Dutchman*. I don't really have like a, a favorite, um, but not I even s- the Scooby-Doo episode, Matt. No, uh, <laughs> I will say though that like the entire run of *Voyager* though is like one long ass uh, *Flying Dutchman*. If you think about it. Oh man! If only they had uh, become more ghostly, and Janeway had become more tyrannical as the show <laughs> had uh, gone on, I would remember it even more fondly. Yeah, that would have been awesome. All right. Oh man, I, I maybe I should uh, maybe I should write a loose version of Voyager into a novel as the you Flying sh- Dutchman. You totally should. You could totally do that, and it would be awesome. And you probably make a lot of money. Go for well, it. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than I make now, though, uh, teaching summer classes for uh, hours a day. Uh, what you got to do is DoorDash, Bob, but you don't have a car, so that it's not going to work too well. Nope. You should walk. Well, <laughs> it's a, I, I don't know, man. I, like, considering, like, you're not, you have to pay for the wear and tear on your car, I've always wondered if, the like, the, the, the delivery driving is actually all it's cracked up to be, given that. I started doing it just because uh, I just needed something to do over the summer, and honestly, like, you make a you make a ton of money, and if you, as long as you choose, like you don't have to take every single order that pops up. So you choose the ones that are only like within two miles. That way, you don't have to uh, drive, you know, forever and tear up your car. But yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the all the delivery quests from video games have helped prepare me for this uh, this fantastic <laughs> I, job. I was actually reading this really bad book by a conservative uh, who, you know, he's one of these guys who thinks like the Republicans are going, becoming a party of workers. And so he was, his whole thing was, oh, I'm not like a free market guy. I'm like a, I'm like a worker first conservative. And he does, he does entertain in the course of the book. uh, Then this will, this will come back around that actually video games are good, which, you know, usually conservatives don't think that, but he, he's, he entertains the argument that actually video games are good because uh, it trains you how to do work better. So all these uh, unemployed uh, neats sitting around, or not neats, what is it? Not in unemployment education or training. Yeah, it is neats. Anyway, all, all of these uh, unemployed incel guys sitting around playing video games are actually training themselves to be very good workers, and eventually that will pay off. The The guy writing the book doesn't wind up believing that, but apparently several other conservatives and libertarians do believe that. Yeah. 
I was saying it more as a joke, but yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, I'm able to read the map better on the GPS because I play Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's about I mean, it. it. It is really bad though that your ability, your uh, your callous ability to run people over to complete <laughs> delivery—that's <laughs> the desensitization of yeah. Grand Theft Auto really hasn't helped you. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I can drive maybe better. I don't know. There's nothing like really. I don't, yeah. It was just more of saying I'd, all you do in most video games, all you do are fetch quests where you go and you get stuff for people and yeah, take yeah. it to other people. That's all DoorDash is. It's just, you know. Yeah. But anyway, all right, so let's talk DS9. Uh, this is the one where Garrick suffers from Cardassian Zoloft withdrawals. All right, so in uh, the A plot, we have uh, Garrick has this implant uh, that is supposed to help him resist torture by stimulating the pleasure centers of his brain. And uh, because he finds his entire existence in exile on DS9 to be torture, he's been uh, using it basically nonstop for a couple of years. And uh, now it's uh, backfiring. It's backfiring on him. And Dr. Bashir has to find a way to uh, help him uh, wean him off this, uh, this pleasure implant in his brain. And then in the B plot, or I guess the related plot, while Garrick is suffering, he tells Bashir several possible stories about his time in the Obsidian Order and his eventual exile. And uh, all of this also sparks the interest of one Constable Odo, who has several open cases that he suspects the Obsidian Order were involved in. So this is the first time uh, we do find out that Garrick was possibly a member of the Obsidian Order. Uh, we also learn Garrick's first name is uh, Elam. And Elam. Elam. God, I cannot say their names to save my <laughs> life. And season five, spoiler that... Uh, Ina Brantain is Garrick's dad. Well, so I, I, I don't really think there's any possibly about it that like he has to be a member of the Obsidian Order. Otherwise, like otherwise, the the plot about the device and the plot about Tain helping him make no sense. Um, like, granted, everything else you have to take with a grain of salt. And, you know, you, like all of these stories, he t all of these stories he tells Bashir are clearly uh, you know, ways of him working through his guilt. But I, I, I think there's, at this point, you have to conclude that Garrick is a former member of the Obsidian Order or the scenario itself doesn't make sense. That, that is true. Yeah, I'll give you that. Because he, I mean, even even when Quark tries to get him like a replacement uh, a wire, <laughs> a replacement one to put in his head, mm -hmm. uh, he can't do it because it's like high level, you know, Cardassian stuff and even gets that other goal in like trouble or whatever. Yeah, I did. I did kind of enjoy that other. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if they said he was a gull or not. But that other Cardassian character, I did enjoy. Um, and it kind of, uh, kind of amusingly, he never, he never again shows up in a novel or an episode. So maybe the Obsidian Order did, in fact, oh, get yeah. him. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> All he did was answer his phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quark, Quark, and Garrett got him killed. Uh, going back to the naming thing, though, every time I read a Cardassian's name, I feel like it's supposed to be a palindrome or an anagram, or it just messes with my eyes. Because, like, Inabrantane. And then I'm like, okay, is it supposed to be backwards? Is it Nyat, Nambrandon? No. Is it, are the letters just mixed up and it's supposed to spell Brandon? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that with their names? They do have an interesting quality with... Like they tend to combine like very hard consonants with uh, multiple multiple vowels. Usually, like they bracket multiple vowels around a hard consonant. So it it is a really interesting formula for a name. Yeah, which is why I'm going back to the Dakot thing. I'm like, what? How do they come up with that name and and without copying it straight from uh, Babylon Five? But anyway, because uh, Dakot's so easy to say. I mean, it's not that like it's not that far off from like Ducat. Like, which, you know, it's like the, 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 you know, like the unit of Venetian currency and like also like in the early 90s, some people use like ducat as, you know, like slang for money. So, yeah. All right. So uh, any any comments on cold case Detective Odo making his way back this time around? I just thought it was kind of funny. He's, uh, you know, he's just Odo being an ass. He's basically Garrick is in a, a junkie and serious withdrawal. And uh, Odo's just, you know, here ready to shake him down for leads as, you know, he's, you know, having the shakes and getting sick and, you know, probably not even able to reliably remember what, what he might even know that's relevant for Odo's cases. 
Yeah, Odo's always like that, though. He won't give people, like, time to heal or anything. He just goes in there and is like, okay, uh, we need to, I need this information. He's got no, uh, he's not soft. But his body is. <laughs> Ew. All right. Except for when it's not. I think he can also increase the density of it. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's got to be a weird, like, just, that's a weird power, I guess is the best way to say that. A weird uh, ability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could compare it to Mr. Fantastic. I'm sure there's other people who could do some. I guess Metamorphosis sort of that's a similar thing. Huh. All right. So, dear, actually, dear, I did read that during the writing of this episode, the Obsidian Order was initially going to be the, the called the Gray Order until the producers learned that Babylon 5 was going to introduce the Gray Council and felt the names were too similar. Uh, so, there is that redeeming piece there. Yeah, it's good. And I mean, hell, Obsidian Order is a much, much better name than the Grey Order. Yeah, it's a cooler name. I give it that. Uh, I did want to go through and recap some of uh, Garrick's lies uh, yeah. that he, he talks about as he suffers. So let's just go through those real quick. Uh, the first lie is that Garrick claims he was a goal in the Cardassian mechanized infantry. I know what mechanized infantry are, it is, but like, I, I every time I hear the word, though, I think of like, Garrick inside of a Megazord from Power Rangers or something like that. <laughs> I will say I was recently reading a, a comic that I really liked, but then in the climax, uh, Black Panther and his supporting cast show up in like Power Ranger style Megazords, and it made me hate the comic. And like even two weeks later, I'm still really bitter about it. So that's since you uh, took away me mocking you for not knowing what a mechanized infantry was. I know what that is. <laughs> I played Age of Empires, Bob. I know what that is. <laughs> anyway, since you robbed me of that, I'm just going to register again my discontent with the climax of Fantastic Four Grand Design. I'm very discontented. All right, so there's lie number one. All right, then. Yes. He killed his aide, uh, Elam. And 97 Cardassians in the destruction of a shuttlecraft in order to kill some Majoran escapees. One of the dead Cardassians was the daughter of a prominent official, which relative to being stripped of rank, and he's exiled from Cardassia. Is that a lie? Um, we would hope, because, I mean, it kind of makes it hard to sympathize with Garrick if it's yeah, true. I feel, I mean, he blew up the, that was the first lie he told, like the first big lie he told. Or big, first, first story he came out with. Yeah, he said that yeah. he said that was what he did at first to, well, to and to be fair that's also part of the first story right like the isn't it like he was he's a goal in a Cardassian mechanism correct yeah, yes yeah. so this is the first story he tells Bashir all right then he also says that he was the next lie he tells he was the protege of the head of the obsidian order in a brand tame you're telling me that's not a lie which I, yeah, I agree I mean, yeah that one's a little more controversial or a, a little harder to deduce just from this episode, but it, it seems likely to be true g given like Tane's mix of contempt and fondness for him. And given that, you know, Tane does take the steps to allow Bashir to help him. So yeah, no, I, I would say that's, that's not a lie. Although maybe, although yeah, definitely this episode doesn't give us all the answers about uh, Garrick and Tane's relationship. So, so then Garrick decides to tell, like, another lie the next time around, and he says this was way worse than, than what happened at the, with the shuttle. Garrick re apparently released five Bajoran youths younger than 15 because he was he, because Garrick himself was hungry and bored. Uh, and instead of, like, actually executing these Bajoran youths, he just, that was all that he did. So apparently that's worse than blowing up well, a shuttle for Cardassians. to be clear, it's like he got, he got tired of interrogating them and was just too bored and hungry to keep going. And so he just decides it's easier to let them go than to have them executed. See, that's why he needs DoorDash, just to come bring a shuttle down on some food, and <laughs> he'd be good to go. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like that was worse than blowing up a whole shuttlecraft of Cardassians and... But, it, but is escapers. it clear to you why Garrick thinks it's worse? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Okay. But it's just like, eh, yeah. Elam, or the next lie, lie number five, Elam was Garrick's friend. They were known as the Sons of Tain. They were involved in a scandal involving the release of Bajoran prisoners. Garrick went to alter records and implicate Elam, but discovered that Elam had already done the same to him. This resulted in exile. So we know now that Elam is actually Garrick's first name. So we, he doesn't have a brother. Maybe he is the son of Tain. 
I feel like if we took all these together and like smushed them into one cohesive story, it would probably be closer to the truth. Maybe that's what he meant at the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it clearly seems to be like he's trying to say that he betrayed himself or harmed himself in some way, right? Because that's the that's the sort of continuing thread, like in the first in the first story of you know blowing up the shuttlecraft, his aide Elam is supposed to be on it. In the second story of releasing the youths, I think that's against the advice into the horror of Elam. And then, yeah, you have this third story of trying to betray Elam, but Elam having betrayed him first. And then at the very end of the episode, he tells Bashir he was not a member of the Obsidian Order because Odo is, you know, fishing around still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this also produces uh, my, one of my favorite Garrick and Bashir exchanges of all, and also a source of a great meme where uh, uh, Garrick tells Bashir, my dear doctor, they're all true. Bashir says even the lies, and Garrick says especially the lies. Yeah, that's, that, that, that pretty much sums it all up as far as like him telling all these lies. And there are some truths within those lies. You can tell that, but uh, that's what makes Garrick such a great character overall. Just The original idea for this episode, Bob, was actually that Kira was going to be addicted to battle stimulants. Boo. Yeah, that, I'm feeling like we don't need another Kira-centered episode. And on top of that, it's just a little... Yeah, that that would have been too much because they've already they've already dealt a lot with Kira's like sort of insecurities and stress uh, from you know her time as a resistance fighter and uh, like slathering an addiction plot over it would have just been too much. Whereas, like it's a very plausible like it's a very plausible and kind of moving reason that Garrick becomes chemically dependent on this uh, this uh, pleasure device in his brain, right? Like he you know the temperature upsets him. He's uh, he's isolated, you know. He's generally treated as a pariah by the Bajorans on the station, so all that makes for very compelling, like psychological reasons why he would develop this dependency. I think if we if they would have gone with the episode where Kira was addicted to battle stimulants, it would have been a lot like that Save by the Bell episode where Jesse gets addicted to caffeine pills. <laughs> or or maybe that uh that a uh, batman comic where batman gets addicted to venom yes yes there you go yeah yeah it, kira it, would have had to lock herself in the bat cave for a month it would have been just like one-off episode that just like and eh, didn't have the the same impact this one does what are you what are you talking about matt venom set up bane are you happy no that's it's all right you can you can not you do not have to read venom to know anything about bane yeah, but it, it is true, though, that Venom does is the introduction both of the drug and of uh, the island, Santa Prisca. I mean, yeah, but you could, they could have just put that in some origin story, you know, Bane number zero or some junk. Who cares? Whatever DC wants to do. All right. Anyway, so I will say this. Looking at both episodes, this is the first mm -hmm. time I'm really starting to actually see some of the evidence of, like, some of the plagiarism that took place. Uh I feel like the Mimbari and the Bajorans both believe in this like prophecy and that there is a one who will do something for their respective people, but we don't know like we, we do know that Cisco is apparently the one in Deep Space Nine, but we don't really know who the I don't particularly know who the one is in Babylon five and then I think it's Sinclair but I don't know. Uh, there's that triangle thing, the triluminary and then the orbs which tell prophecy. Uh, I got really big Wolf 359 board vibes from that scene with the Gatling gun and Garibaldi. I feel like the Norn being occupied by the Centauri is the same way that Bajor was occupied by the Cardassians. And then you've got like the jump gate and the wormhole are right, very similar to how they how they work, you know, with DS9 being a port to uh, the Delta Quadrant and Babylon 5 being a port to wherever the jump gate goes. So... Yeah, yeah. Although I, w I would say in fairness, like, right, Wolf 359 predates Babylon 5. And I, I, there definitely are important similarities between the jump gate and the wormhole, you know, namely that they're both like abandoned ancient alien technology. But on the other hand, like, you know, obviously there's big differences too, whereas the jump gates are general are spread out throughout known space and the wormhole is, you know, just this one thing that does this one magical thing of sending you to the gamma quadrant it's not like a it's not like a sort of way that you can travel so i mean there's oh, some snap. Wait a there yeah you didn't correct me bob i said <laughs> i said delta quadrant i meant gamma quadrant my bad <laughs> i'm gonna slap I mean, myself now <laughs> yeah yeah so it goes 
um, yeah, and I mean, you're right that the pro the prophecy angle is really big, and it feels like there was a you know a big influence from the JMS Babylon Five pitch there. Although in some ways, the way the two prophecy plot lines play out are pretty different. In other ways, they're not. But in some important ways, they're pretty different. Although it is also interesting, like how they're treated, because the the prophecy about the one in Babylon Five is treated as the source of mystery. Like you know, you're reluctant to even say fully that Sinclair is the one. You're not really quite sure what the significance of that is, and it's a sort of ongoing thing. Where I don't know, in a lot of ways, like Cisco being the emissary really isn't a big deal until uh, uh, except for in very particular episodes right like you could watch the bulk of the show and not think about cisco being the emissary and it doesn't matter that much yeah just looking at season one really the first episode of ds of season one ds9 and then the last episode of season one ds9 touch on him being the emissary that's about it i mean there's nothing really in between yeah, yeah, and later, like, there'll be some important revelations about Cisco, and he'll, like, kind of use his emissary status to intercede, but yeah, like, on the whole, I think DS9 is a lot less driven by Cisco being the emissary than Babylon 5 will turn out to be driven by its prophecies. But yeah, no, the, the analogies are pretty striking, and yeah, it's pretty persuasive evidence that the you know the babylon 5 uh, pitch was used to shape ds9 and that you know it's a good thing that jms won his lawsuit against paramount I, the terms of which i think are undisclosed okay yeah it's, it's definitely becoming more evident as we as we move on through season one um of b5 all right so you want to move on into watches sure sure hit us with thirst watch Matt. all right thirst watch uh, Garrick's excitement when Bashir wants to go back to his quarters to finish off a bottle of Kinar is like hilarious. Like he just thinks he's, he thinks he's like hit the jackpot. You can just see it in his face. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then in a deep state watch, we have the debut of the obsidian order. Um, although I, I really liked the introduction of the, uh, uh, the obsidian order. I really enjoyed, uh, the Bashir's conversation with the Nabra and Tain. All that was really fun. I will say, though, it's a pretty ridiculous conceit that Bashir has never heard of the Cardassian equivalent of the CIA, like that you would think that would be pretty common knowledge. So I was a little I was a little annoyed by that that touch in the dialogue. But otherwise, a good episode uh, for Deep State Watch, especially since Bashir seems to know like everything else. He's, he's very much one of those uh, characters who just seems to know everything and know it all in a sense. Well, yeah, and it's, like, also, like, you know, he does have this, like, amateur interest in espionage, which the later show will keep playing off of. And then also, just in general, like, you know, like, you would think that most Starfleet officers would, you know, probably know the names of the intelligence agencies of the major powers, right? Like, you would assume every Starfleet officer would know who the Tal Shiar is, right? Like, that doesn't seem like that much of a specialist knowledge. Yeah, and he's been reading Garrick's books, too. They've been, like, the whole book exchange thing from the beginning of the episode, so it had been mentioned at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially given, like, the... I hadn't even thought about it from that angle, but especially given the ubiquity of the Obsidian Order in surveilling, like, average Cardassian life. Yeah, no, there's... You would think they would have to be... They would have to come up in Cardassian literature. All right. So let's talk favorite character. My favorite character this episode... These two episodes was Garrick. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. Good character. <laughs> my uh, favorite was Zathras. Um, I think he's actually funnier in later episodes, but I really like him here. I particularly love his line, uh, either way, it's bad for Zathras. <laughs> um, and then I, I would also say I really do like Anabra and Tain. Um, I, I especially love that he can both say and be pretty convincing when he says both. Um, I want Garrick to live a long, miserable life. I want him to grow old on a station surrounded by people who hate him, knowing he'll never come home. And now run along, Doctor, and tell Garrick that I miss him. <laughs> it would be weird growing up in like a Cardassian family. Yeah, although I think the I think the isn't it the part part of the issue that Garrick is uh, Inabrin Tain's illegitimate son. I think you're right. I, that's something I'd have to go back and yeah. So yeah, like, I, I I don't know if ordinary Cardassian parenting would be as abusive as Tain is to Garrick, but I think. The, yeah, 
I think the the I think Tane's role as a spy master and uh, the fact that Garrick is illegitimate probably led to the differential treatment to some extent. I'm just gonna assume Cardassian upbringing is awful. Just go from there. <laughs> I don't know. Like the you know the dad in the episode Cardassian seemed pretty supportive. You know, for Cardassian at least. Yeah. And we we know uh, we know Ducat. Uh, you know he loves Torres Eyal, who's also an illegitimate child. True. Maybe they're just maybe they're just okay with their illegitimate kids. Maybe they hate their real kids. It's getting deep. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, what's his face in the Car- Rogel uh, in the Cardassians episode wasn't illegitimate. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about better episode. Uh, I'm gonna say. Hands down, Babylon Squared was the better episode, but these were two fantastic episodes this week. So, yeah, much much as I hate to agree with you, I gotta give it to Babylon Squared. Yeah. All right. Uh, next week, we're gonna be looking at uh, Babylon Five, Season One, Episode Nineteen, Quality of Mercy, and then we're gonna be looking at Deep Space Nine, Season Two, Episode Twenty Three, Crossover, which I believe is the Mirror Universe episode. It is indeed the Mirror Universe so, episode, and Quality of Mercy actually. It feels like a kind of one-off Star Trekky episode of Babylon Five, but it actually turns out to be maybe fairly important as an overstatement. But it turns out to be somewhat important to like the longer-term storyline of Babylon Five. So it's a it's an episode you might put on your list as well. Okay, well we'll uh, be looking at those next week, and you want to see us off, Bob? This has been uh, Babylon Five versus Deep Space Nine. Uh, I am Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. Have a good night, everybody. All right, thanks for listening.